Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. We're jumping into a story today where God's been silent for 400 years. 400 years. I wish I could get up here and say that I could put a scope on what 400 years is, but I can't. Because it's longer than I've been alive. It's longer than our country's been alive. It's longer than any of us can probably remember. 400 years God was silent. Because there's a tension there. There's a tension between God being silent and, and us wanting answers. There's a tension there between God being silent and still being good. There's a tension there when God is silent. And I think the hardest part about it, about God being silent one of them at least, is that the longer that God is silent, the more we forget who he is. You know? The longer that God is silent, the less real God feels to me. Remember the first time I was teaching middle school students probably four or five years ago, and I think they were all at that point born around 2000 or 2001, and I said, in a a lesson, I said, hey, yeah, you guys remember where you were at 9-11, the thing that defined my generation, defined it. I can tell you exactly what happened. And they looked at me and they said, no, we've just read about it. I said, what? The problem was that this impactful moment that defined my generation was no longer real to the kids beneath me. When God is silent for 400 years, he's no longer as real as he once was. It's the problem because you know nobody who knew nobody who knew nobody who knew nobody whose grandparents knew nobody who knew that God was active. How hard is that? Today we jump into a story where God's been silent for 400 years and our tension is how do we remain faithful to a God who seemingly isn't? Yeah? It's in Luke chapter one. You can go there before we kick that off. We are going to pray for our time together like we always do. We have two goals on Sunday mornings here at the CBC. We want to know God. We dive into scripture. We know and we search through the scriptures and we learn more about the character of God who we will never fully know because he's bigger than us and that's beautiful. But we do more than just know God because he made us to feel. We experience God. And so we worship. And those things are heightened by one another. And knowledge without experience is simply cold. And experience without knowledge is simply shallow. And so those are our two goals on Sunday mornings. And what that takes is a concerted effort from all of us in the room. That means that the Holy Spirit is going to work in your life today and in your heart today. And God's going to do stuff. And I'm excited for it. And so what we want to do in a culture that values criticism is spend some time and just pray for our time together. And I'm going to ask you to pray quietly to yourself that God might do something in your heart today because he's active and he's near. And then I'm going to ask that you pray for me that I don't mess up too much today. All right, let's pray together real quick. God, I'm thankful for our time together and I'm thankful for tensions because that's where we grow. I pray that as we dive into the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth today that you teach us something from a story we've probably heard a dozen times before. I'd ask that um, if you're comfortable, spend a couple moments in silence and just ask that the Spirit work in your life today to reveal more about God's goodness in our text. And if you would, spend a couple minutes and just pray for me, that my words might be edifying and encouraging and, and tell the truth about who God is in this world. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Luke chapter 1. The beginning of the Christmas narrative, everybody. We're going to be here for five weeks. 
of Christmassy goodness this season. And where our story starts is really in verse 5. So we're just going to read through this narrative and cut it up as we go. Let's start in verse 5. It says, During the reign of Herod, king of Judea, there lived a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. And he had a wife, and her name was Elizabeth, who was a descendant of Aaron. They were both righteous in the sight of God, following all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blamelessly. As our story starts, we have three main characters in our story. Really two, and then a minor character, and Herod. And as a side note, I love when the scriptures do this. I love when the scriptures give me a person that actually existed in time and space. Sometimes people can say, I don't believe the Bible is real, and that is your opinion, and that's fine. They can say, I believe these guys that wrote the stories of Jesus made it up. And in those moments, I say, they're really bad liars if they're going to make this whole thing up and give me a person that actually existed I can fact check them on, you know? So I love this. They said, hey, here's Herod, and we know that Herod ruled from roughly 34 BC to 4 BC. We know what he was like. We know that he was a little bit crazy and power-happy and hungry. One historian said he would do whatever he had to do to prop up his fame, and he killed his family for it. We knew that Herod was a pretty uncertain person trying to rule this region of Judea. We know that at a time and a space he actually existed. I love when the Bible gives me those details. So there's this crazy ruler, Herod, and in the middle of that, there is this couple named Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth, and we know a couple things about them. One, We know that he was a priest and he belonged to um, a certain tribe or division of that priest. There were 24 priestly divisions. He belonged to the eighth division. Two, we know that he had a wife named Elizabeth and Elizabeth was a descendant of Aaron. If you don't know Aaron, Aaron was the most famous priest of all time. He started the whole priest thing way back when Moses was around. Aaron was the pinnacle of what you were supposed to be as a priest. And I say that to let you know that this family comes from priestly royalty, right? This family was a big deal in their culture. It's like if anybody in our culture tries to tie themselves back to like the Washingtons. Oh my goodness, you're in the family of royalty. So it says that they were from the line of Aaron in verse 6. They were both righteous in the sight of God, following all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blamelessly. So, before we go any farther in our story, we have to talk for a sec about what's meant by righteous and blameless. Because when we read the scriptures, I think sometimes, and this is kind of what this series is hopefully going to do, is demystify or de-Disneyfy the telling of these stories. We read these stories and we think these people are so much different than us. They had this measure of righteousness or faith that we can't aspire to or attain. We think, oh my gosh, he was a priest and he's from the line of Aaron and he was blameless and righteous. I'm nowhere near that. That's not what the text means. When it says blameless and righteous there, what that word means is literally that he did his best to live into the ways of God. And when he messed up, he did his best to fix it as quickly as possible, right? It's like my kid's three and a half months. I have, and I don't want to say this out loud because it's probably going to change it, knock on wood people. I have a good kid. I do. I have a good kid. My kid sleeps almost through the night already, five, six, seven hours at a time. She doesn't cry that often. She's a, she smiles all the time. I have a really good kid. I was at my family's house for Thanksgiving, and my brother was there, and his wife was there, and I came over one morning, fed the kid, and then she just started crying. I mean, and I couldn't stop it. Usually if she cries, it's for a reason. You fix it, we move on in life, right? She's my kid. She's efficient. And... <laughs> And, 
And she started crying, and, and I, I couldn't stop it. And so I'm like, is she done eating? I burped her, changed her diaper. I'm, I'm doing a little sway thing. You know, I'm, I'm shushing all in her ear like I'm supposed to do. And she just wouldn't stop crying. And my mom finally said, hey, let me take her. And I said, she is yours. And after about 20 minutes, I handed her over, and I walk out to the living room, and my wife's, I mean, my brother's wife sat there and said, hey, and I said, I'm so sorry, guys. And she said, why? I said, my kid is crying. And she said, that's what kids do. I said, not mine. <laughs> you know? And she said, really? And I said, I'm so sorry. I have a good kid. It doesn't mean she's perfect. It just means that overall, overwhelmingly, she's pretty good. It's like if you have a good husband or a good wife. I'm not perfect by any means. and My wife's not perfect, but we try to serve each other well. I have a good wife, you know? We make mistakes, but we rectify those mistakes and get back into the ways of the Lord as soon as we notice them. That's what's meant when it said they were blameless and righteous. They tried hard to make God happy. They tried hard to live out the ways of God, you know? So you have this couple from a great line that worked in the service of God, that served God well, so much they were defined as righteous and blameless. You think they'd set them up well, and then we run into verse 7, but they did not have a child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both very old. We've talked about, this summer we talked about barrenness in the first century and barrenness in the Old Testament, and I think it, it's worth noting it's different than barrenness now. So barrenness now, if you want a kid, don't have a kid, it's hard, it's frustrating, it's sad, but mostly it's personal here and now in our culture. Mostly I feel for you, but I don't judge you for it. Mostly I feel for you, but I think, man, maybe early retirement for you one day, you know, I feel for you, but the problem with Barrenness in the Old Testament was, it wasn't just personal, and it was personal. It was Elizabeth's problem, because I always blamed the woman. So she had her own personal shame to deal with, like you would if you were without a kid now and you really wanted one. But also, if you were barren in the first century world, you, you literally were a failure to your people. They were a community-centric culture, which meant that the, the, the group was more important than the individual. And so everything you did revolved around the group and the group's identity they gave you. So if you didn't pop out a kid, you were failing the future of your people. You were providing one less soldier for when they got attacked. You were providing one less person that could help make food for the soldiers because it was a lot about war. You were failing not just yourself and not just your family, but the families of the people you knew, loved, cared for. You were failing your whole country. And you were providing them without a hope and without a future. One commentator says it well. He said, barrenness in the ancient text symbolized hopelessness. For without children, there was no foreseeable future for yourself, for your family, or for your people. And here's the hard part about that. If you're barren in that culture, let me tell you something. It's a hard thing to get over. Because they also saw it as, as a measure of God's cursedness on you. So... Just so we we're on the same page with how heavy this was on Zechariah and Elizabeth. He worked for God. He came from a very, very prominent line of God-working people, and she couldn't have a kid. So when she went out, people looked and stared and pointed, and they said, that's the priest who God is clearly not happy with. He hasn't given him a kid yet. I had some friends of mine a couple years ago, um, pretty prominent in their community, and, and they were going through some stuff with their family, um, some shameful stuff that we won't get into, but I remember talking to the wife, uh, about how she was doing. And she said, Charlie, I, I just don't feel like I can leave my house. I don't feel like I can go to Target. I don't feel like I can go to the store because everywhere I go, people look at me and they see that. Everywhere I go, people look at me and they judge. How claustrophobic must that have felt like? When we, when we see 
Elizabeth is barren. That's the picture it's painting. These people, of all people, should have lots of kids because the scripture says they're a gift from the Lord. If the Lord loves you and found favor with you, he gives you kids, but they don't have one yet. How hopeless is their future? And so it sets up this juxtaposition of this couple that seemingly was doing all the right things, but to no avail. Seemingly was faithful week in and week out. And I'm sure they prayed every day for a kid, but God wasn't there. My point is that God isn't just silent to his people in our text. He's silent to their family in our text. It gives it weight. And so it says in the middle of this that that Zechariah had a job to do. Look at verse 8. Now while Zechariah was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to enter the holy place and burn incense. So what we see in our text is the job that he was called to do. When it says that he was, um, his, his division was called upon about Twice a year, there were 24 divisions, so twice a year, your division was called upon. And you'd go to the temple, and you'd work for a week, and you'd do all the things. You'd make sacrifices, and you'd clean the things, and you'd say the prayers, and you'd do all the things that was supposed to happen. There was about 18,000 priests in the first century in Israel. There was a lot of people. And so, once a day, maybe sometimes twice a day, you would go and burn incense. And it says in our text, while Zechariah was serving as priest, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to enter the place and burn incense. That call to burn incense was the highlight in this man's career, without a doubt. Usually, if you were lucky, you got called upon to do this one time. So when it says he was chosen by lot to do this thing, it is not a small thing. It's not a he's doing the welcome today, everybody. How you doing? It is, this is the high point of my career. I get to go and burn incense. What would happen is you would, you would go into this room. So the temple had all these courts and all these rooms. And there was two very, very special rooms. There was a holy place and next to it was the holy of holies. And it was separated by a veil. And the holy place had three things in it. The holy of holies was where they thought the presence of God resided, where they didn't even go into. They didn't look into or you died. They went in there two times, one day a year, on the day of atonement. And so what you would do is you would take a burning coal from the altar in the main court and you would take it into the holy place. And there was three things. There was a lamp on this wall over here with seven flames on it. There was a table over here with bread and right next to it there was incense. And right on the other side of that veil that it was up against was the temple, was the Ark of God of the Covenant, where the presence of God resided. It was incredibly, incredibly important to do this job. This was the highlight of his career. So you'd take a coal, and you'd go in there by yourself, and you'd start an incense to God. And that incense was symbolic of the prayers of the people to God. Very serious work. And it says that how he was chosen to do this, because I don't want to pass this up, he was chosen by Lot. I don't know if you know what that phrase means in the Old Testament, but, but if you're chosen by Lot, that doesn't just mean that you got lucky. Proverbs 16 talks about it. It says the dice are thrown into the lap, but their every decision is from the Lord. So just in case you don't know, this isn't like, hey, they didn't know what to do and they played bingo. And if your number is called, you got to go burn some incense. Good day for you. Let's all join the lottery, right? It's not what he's saying. When it says he's chosen by lot, it was actually a system put in place by God in the Old Testament so that he might work his sovereign hand through the people of God. They would cast these lots and they trusted that God worked in and through those lots to bring about 
the future he wanted through the people he desired. So when I was growing up, I was a basketball player, and that's what my friends and I would do for hours and hours and hours and hours. I don't know if you guys know anybody in high school that plays basketball with their friends, but usually there are some fights, you know? You're running a lot, and there's fouls and not fouls. I don't know who came up with this ingenious system to stop the fighting of adolescent males playing basketball, but every time there was an argument that we couldn't resolve, we'd do something called um, the ball never lies. I don't know if you know what this is. So the ball never lies, quite simply, and I don't know who adopted this, but it is, it is, it is accepted, I think, I think worldwide, we'd have to say. So you could get in a fight with somebody, they fouled me, I didn't think I fouled them, whatever it might be, we could almost come to blows, and somebody would say, dude, the ball never lies, dude, it never lies. We'd say, oh, that's right, I forgot. And so you take the ball, and the guy who had the grievance would go to the free throw line or the three-point line, he'd take one shot, one shot. And if he made it, the gods have spoken, and clearly he was right and he got fouled, Right? If he missed it, the gods had spoken, and you didn't get fouled. And we just accepted it, right? It was like, oh, you missed it. Great, ball never lies, my ball, right? And you moved on. It's their version of lots. The difference was this was divinely inspired so God could have a hand in his people. And why I want to bring that point out is because I think one of the first things I see that's important in this text is, sure, God is silent, but, because, but just because God is silent doesn't mean he's not active, <laughs> It was a divinely inspired way to move through his people. And so when it says he's casting lots, what he's saying to his people is that I'm still active, but I'm pretty quiet right now. Because silence is hard. And, and when God is silent, not just here, but probably in your life and I know in mine, when God is silent, I have this proclivity to believe that he's left me. That he either doesn't care or that in some ways he said that he's done with me, or that he just forgot, or fill in the blank. But what he's saying is, I'm silent, but I'm still active. There is a difference. And so Zechariah is going to go into this place. And it's him, and he's alone. And just so we can all understand how serious this thing was, we have three cases in the Old Testament, two of them were in Leviticus 10, of when people didn't burn incense in the right way, and you know what happened? They died, right? So it's not a hard job. It's not like he could mess it up. It's just if he didn't take it seriously, God said, I should be taken seriously, and you might not make it out. And so it was something that probably he was a little afraid of I would be, he, he, was, he was probably afraid that he'd mess it up in some way, and so I know that he thought through it well. I know that he said, this is really important. It's the high point of my career, and I could die. So let's take this thing seriously as I'm all alone in this room doing this one job, which makes the next part of our text even more profound. Verse 11, he gets in there. An angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense, appeared to him. And Zechariah, visibly shaken when he saw the angel, was seized with fear. Right, so if, if you're all alone, if you expect to be all alone, if you're nervous because it's the most important thing you've done with your career, and if you mess it up, there's really no plan B here. If that's the case, and you look up and something's in the room with you, when it says visibly shaken with fear, grip like grass with fear, that, I like to scare people, okay? Um, you can ask people in the office. I hide behind doors. I hide in desks. I hide in cars. One time I bear crawled through the upstairs office and got somebody with an air horn, right? My favorite moment of me scaring somebody, I've done this all my life. I think it's fantastic. I was at Moody at college and we had communal showers. And there's a guy, one of my best friends named Adrian, a, a big Puerto Rican dude. 
who lived next to me. And we had these wardrobes and not closets because it was what a dorm should be, not what a dorms are today, which are hotel suites. Anyway, so we um, had these <laughs> wardrobes and you'd shower in the community showers and put on some shorts and walk back to your room. Adrian was one of the lucky few who had a roommate move out like two weeks in. And so he had a whole room to himself when you had to share with somebody else. So I loved scaring Adrian because he scared really easily and he was larger than me. And I don't know, maybe, maybe it was a power thing. I have no idea. So what I did was, because I was not very big, I, I hid in his wardrobe, right? Like I, I got in a ball and like squatted in his, shut the doors and I waited. This kid comes out of the shower and he closed his door and he said, I mean, in that moment, you fully don't expect anybody to be in your room, you know? He didn't live with anybody. He just got out of the shower and he goes to open, to put a shirt on and open his wardrobe. And as he opened it, I leapt out at this large man, right? It was amazing. Why I love it is because in that moment when you're scared like that, you have no control over what's coming out of your mouth, right? Seriously, ask some of the staff. It's so good. You have no control. When he says he's visibly shaken, that's what he's talking about. Like, I am so afraid. I am not in control of what's going on right now. This dude is paralyzed with fear. And he probably said some word in the holy places that weren't said in the holy places, you know? And so the angel says to him when he's shaken with fear in this moment of sacredness, in verse 13, don't be afraid. For your prayers have been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear with you a son. His name will be John. Joy and gladness will come to you, and the people of Israel. Um, joy and gladness will come to you, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. <laughs> so, he'd been praying for a kid for at least 80, 90 years, most likely. His people had been praying for 400 years for God to save them. The prophets no priests. God didn't send anybody like he had the prior 700 years. And all of a sudden, an angel shows up. All of a sudden, an angel shows up. And my first thought when I read this text is, one, God likes scaring people, too. We're so similar. But two, <laughs> two, <laughs> I'm joking. Two, um, my first thought is, why couldn't God just tell him beforehand in a different way? Why couldn't God tell him he was praying 30 years ago when he wanted to get pregnant? Hey, this is going to happen for you. Just be patient. Why couldn't God just pass him a note one day and say, hey, I'm going to give you a kid, but it's going to need to be a while because I'm doing something here, you know? Why couldn't God tell Israel when they cried out for 400 years, hey, look, I promise something is happening here. You just don't know it yet. Why did he wait? And why didn't he say anything? Why was he quiet? <laughs> why was he quiet? That's hard for me. Because the tension of silence brings me to this place where I wish God would just tell me something. And I think a, a couple answers come out of that. One is, I think it's overwhelmingly clear that God answers prayers in his time for his purposes. Because they're better than mine, you know? In his time and for his purposes. And, and we're not going to back out and do the, the macro thing today. We're going to do that in a week. But one of the things I find really cool about this text is if you read verses 16 and 17, what you see is almost a mirror image or mirrored words from Malachi 4, from Malachi 4, 4 through 6. What happens is, if you don't know, Malachi was the last book in the Old Testament. Malachi 4 is the last chapter in the Old Testament. Malachi verses 4 through 6 are the last verses in the Old Testament. God showed up 400 years later and said the same thing that he said 400 years ago. He's telling the story is going on. 
I, I love what that does when I read the story, the confidence that inspires with me. That God knew what was happening and has planned something all along. And he wasn't just asleep for a while saying, oh yeah, I took a quick nap. I'm back at it again. Also, if you look at it from an even larger macro perspective, the 400 years is significant. This is next week, but it is significant in God's design any good Jew would recognize that 400 years is a mirror of the time that he waited before he saved him from Egypt. And so maybe God is saying, there was 400 years of silence there, there is now, I am bringing you out of bondage again. It just is a different kind of bondage. <laughs> we have to recognize that God's plans are a little bit better than ours. And just because he's silent doesn't mean he's not active. I was talking with an elder a couple weeks ago about this text and he talked to me about his kid. And he said, when my kid was in high school, he was really, really stubborn. Like, really stubborn. And he said, man, I, I, I prayed. I don't know what you pray for your kid. I just pray that my kid sleeps. But I guess when she gets older, I'm going to pray for different things. And he said, for years, his wife and I, they, they, they prayed that God might take away the stubbornness of their kid, but he didn't. He didn't take away the stubbornness of their kid and they kept praying and they kept praying and they kept praying and one of the questions they had that I'm sure Zechariah had that I'm sure all the Israelites had that I'm sure you and me have today is I keep praying but nothing seems to happen. Why? And I think one simple truth comes out of this is that God doesn't tell us all his plans right here and right now in the present and that's a good thing for us. I do. I think it's frustrating but I think it's really good because here's the deal. If I were to know how my life's going to shape out, all the ins and outs right now, I don't think I could be present in the present. If I knew, I was talking to staff this week, if I knew when I was going to die, two things would happen. Either one, if it was like in 20 years, I would be jumping off of buildings and things today. You know, I'd be like, I'm not dying for 20 years. Let's go to Whataburger, everybody. You know what I'm talking about? It would not be a healthy way to do life. Two, if I knew I was dying in two weeks or maybe in 20 years, I would dwell on it all the time and I'd miss the present of the present. See what I did there? There you go. It's Christmas season, everybody. Um, but you would. I think us not knowing the plans of God in full is a grace of God, even if it doesn't feel like it. And here's the deal. We do that with our kids all the time. And it's good. If you're a six-year-old now, you're not going to sit them down and say, let me tell you what adolescence is like because you're headed for it. It's going to be terrible, you know? If you have a six-year-old now, However your family does Christmas and Santa, you don't, you don't need to remove the innocence from them. That'll happen quick enough. You let them live in their blissful ignorance because that is a grace you give your children and should give your children for as long as you deem necessary. And we think that's good because it is. And then when God does it to us, sometimes we don't think it's good anymore. So I, I think just because God doesn't tell us his plans in advance doesn't mean he's not good or it's not good. I think it's good for us because we think it's good when we do it to others. So God's plans, oftentimes we don't see, we don't see how they're gonna pan out, we don't see how he's answering our prayers, but he does. I love how it says, if you follow with me, in verse, let's go to verse 15, it says, he will be great in the sight of the Lord, like we just read. Um, it says, he will never drink wine or strong drink. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, even before his birth, verse 16. He will turn away the people of Israel he would turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. This is important. And he will go as forerunner before the Lord in spirit and in the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers back to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of a just 
to make ready for the Lord a people prepared for him. (laughs) So one, it's just because we don't know the plans of God doesn't mean that he's not answering according to his purposes. And then two, I love that so often when God answers prayers, it exceeds my prayers in the first place. It just exceeds my expectations. Daryl Bach said it like this. He said, sometimes we're deprived of something because God has greater things waiting for us down the road. When we wait patiently in the Lord, he often gives us more than we imagined possible. Zachariah and Elizabeth wanted a child. What they got was a prophet. It's so good. So Paul, um, the elders praying for his kid. They would, God would take away the stubbornness and then he ended the story by saying, but you know what? He said, my kid was really stubborn and then somebody challenged him to do this Bible, read your Bible in a year plan. I don't know if you guys have done that, but let me tell you what happens. About 30 days in, you hit Leviticus um, <laughs> and that's where you stop. <laughs> so, you know, let's just be honest. You read about tassels, you're like, oh my gosh, I know it's inspired. I'm just not feeling it today. You know what I'm talking about? So, Anyway, he's talking about his kid and, and how stubborn the kid was. And he said, he read this Bible in a year plan and rallied some of his friends to do it. And he said, I never thought he'd make it through. But what God did was turn that stubbornness into determination so that he could pursue Jesus even more wholeheartedly. He said, if God had taken away the stubbornness, then he never would have been that determined. I love it. I love it. This idea that God so often supersedes our expectations and our prayers. And so when he says he's going to go in the spirit of Elijah, that was the best prophet they ever had. That was the pinnacle of all the prophets. And God's saying, you wanted a kid. I'm going to give you a prophet. You have no idea what I'm doing, but it's bigger than you could have imagined. He's saying the waiting's worth it, you know? And just because I'm silent doesn't mean I'm not active. But here's the tragedy of silence. Go with me to verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, so this happened, and he's appeared, there's an angel standing next to him, and, and he's been silent for so long, and Zechariah has worked so diligently, so faithfully to be a priest and to check the boxes and to fill his duties and probably felt like God wasn't holding up his end of the bargain. So when the angel appeared and said these wonderful things, Zechariah responded by saying, how can I be sure of this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is as old as me as well. The angel answered, I'm Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. I think what's really interesting about our text and something that kind of, as I read it this week, resonated with me is that over time, silence usually has a cause. And in our text here, um, lasting silence caused him and causes us sometimes to lose faith in God's ability to answer. You know? Because you just, Start not just thinking he's not going to show up, but you start believing he won't. That's the cost of silence sometimes. Daryl Bach says, sometimes even good people have doubts about God's promise. Larson, another commentator, said, even a righteous man can pray with no sense of expectation. The tragedy of this story is Zechariah was a faithful man who'd lost faith in God's ability to deliver. I think he still loved God. I think he still worked for God. I think he still wanted God to be good. I think he believed that God was good, but he did it without any belief in his expectation anymore because silence over time has a cost. And I remember the first time I read this, I thought that, you know, it's a pretty good question there, Zechariah. And God had kind of a disproportional response because he makes him mute for nine months. But as I read it more, it became more apparent that it wasn't just that Zechariah said, I don't believe you. I don't think this can happen. He said, I don't think God can do this anymore. 
John Piper says it like this. If you know the story of Mary that we're going to get to in three weeks, Mary questions it too, but Piper says, Zechariah asks for more evidence. Mary asks for an explanation. Zechariah says he can't be sure. Mary says she can't understand. He's questioning God's ability to deliver in the first place. That's what happens when God is silent for prolonged periods of time. And you know what? I've been there. (laughs) I remember the first time this happened to me. I was in middle school. And um, I love the Lord. I was the chaplain of my class, I think, at this point. And because I gave people king-size Snickers and said, vote. And uh, (laughs) again, you know, I get the job done. So... I uh, had a friend of mine went to a small private school, and so there were 70 of us in my class, and we knew each other well, and usually at small private schools, um, you grow up with these people. There was a kid named Kenny, and Kenny was uh, mentally handicapped, and he was never going to be able to take care of himself, but he was in our class, you know, um, and I loved that. He was on the football team, and, you know, we tried to include him in as many things as possible. Spring break, my, I think it was eighth grade year, spring break my eighth grade year, Kenny went on a mission trip to Mexico. And something happened on that mission trip and he was in a van and the van fell off something and rolled away. And long story short, Kenny ended up paralyzed from his legs down. And I thought to myself, he was on a mission trip to Mexico doing the Lord's work. I thought he's already had a, a tough enough life with, you know, just his mental handicap. Um, of all people, this shouldn't happen to this kid, you know. And so we gathered our class together and every day at lunch, our class would get together in our Bible teacher's room and we would pray that God would heal Kenny. We'd pray every single day. We missed lunch as teenagers to do this, people, all right? Um, and at first I remember thinking, God's gonna do it, slam dunk. It will happen, I promise. God is good. This was a mission trip. I don't see how this loses. But a month in, I don't think I was in the same place, you know? And so God didn't heal Kenny. <laughs> I wish he would have. He's still quiet there. <laughs> I don't know why. Uh, but I will tell you that over time, I started, I stopped believing. I was faithful to showing up, but stopped believing that God would actually do anything. And I think that's what's happening with Zechariah here. And I think that's the tragedy of silence. And I think that's what the story is pushing against, is saying just because God is silent, don't lose faith in God's ability to answer or deliver. Because it's his plan and his time. And do you believe he's good? And so the angel says, what you say if you're an angel, I know you don't believe me, but I stand next to God 24-7, so tough luck. He says... In verse 20, if you want a sign, here it is, because you didn't believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, you will be silent, unable to speak, until the day these things take place. Let me summarize the next few verses for you, just for time. What's happening was, you would pray these prayers, and there was a set prayer that you'd pray for your people, and there was a large crowd outside that prayed with you at three o'clock when they burned the incense, and so they expected you to come back in a range of time, depending upon how quickly you prayed and how fast you talked right? And so after a while, it says in the next verses in 21, he didn't come back. And people started getting worried because they probably thought back to Leviticus 10 and said, hey, haven't people died doing this before? So they started getting worried saying, where is he? Where is he? Where is he? This is taking longer than he should. And he finally comes out. And when he comes out, they're excited he's alive. And when a priest would come out from giving the incense offering, he would say a blessing over his people. It's in Numbers 6. Number six, it would say, he would get in front of them all, and they'd all been praying, and he'd say, the Lord bless you and protect you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So he comes out and they say, pray the blessing over us. And he just stares at them awkwardly like I did to you 25 minutes ago. And they say, say something. And he just kind of shrugs. 
And actually, we find out in the latter part of this text that he wasn't just unable to speak, but he couldn't understand them speaking either because they had to write things down for him. So he was deaf and he was mute. And so over time, they realize that he can't speak. God must have done something. And then it leaves it hanging there, right? It says, if you go to the text, it says in verse 22, when he came out, he was not able to speak they realized that he had seen a vision in the holy place because he was making signs to them and remained unable to speak. When his time of service was over, he went home. So they just had this inkling of maybe God's doing something again. It's a fascinating place to be. So skip down with me to uh, verse 57 and the story wraps up. In verse 57, the kid is actually here. In verse 57, again, he's a good Jew, and so he kept the regulations of the Jewish people. And what that stipulated was, on the eighth day, you circumcise your kid, and you get your whole family together, and you pronounce the name over the kid. And the name in the first century was a family lineage. It wasn't just a name because it sounded cute with your last name like I did with my kid. A name was identity. A name was future. A name was hope. A name was all the things you hoped for them to be. It was a huge deal. It was usually your dad's name because you wanted to follow in his footsteps, especially if he's from the line of Aaron and a priest. And so you would circumcise your kid and then you'd say, this is what we're going to call him on the eighth day. And that's what happens in our text. Look at verse 59. It says, on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child and they wanted to name him Zechariah after his father. But his mother replied, no, he must be named John. They said to her, none of the relatives bears this name. So they made signs of the baby's father inquiring what he wanted to name his son. He asked for a writing tablet and wrote. So pause. He literally had an opportunity once again to believe God or not believe God. Because she said, we're going to name our kid John. And they said, that's not what we do. That's not anybody's name in our family. That's not okay. And so they appealed to the husband, basically saying like, hey, John, or Zechariah, your wife is crazy. Why don't you fix this and tell me what his name's going to be? It's going to be Zechariah, right? And they said, John, she's clearly wrong, or Zechariah, she's clearly wrong. What's the kid's name going to be? And at that moment, at that moment what we had was another space for him to be faithful and faithless or to be faithful and believe that God answers. Because really what this story is to me, it's a case study on one man's disbelief over time when God is silent. It's a case study on a guy who works hard for God but doesn't know how to deal with periods in life when God doesn't seemingly work for or with us, when God doesn't speak back. And the frustration and the anger and the rejection that comes with that. And so they said, John, let's try this again. What's his name going to be? And he replies. He said, his name is John. And they were all amazed Immediately, Zechariah's mouth was opened and his tongue released. And he spoke, blessing God. It says, all their neighbors were filled with fear and throughout the entire hill country of Judea, all these things were talked about. And I love that end to our text. I love the end to our text in so many ways, but one, it's this idea of what God does if we faithfully believe, even if he's silent, that he can and still it's what expectation looks like lived out. Because he had a choice again whether to believe or not believe. And this is a case study of the person of John, a priest who knew God but stopped believing in God's ability to answer anymore. 
And it's sad, but I've been there. And it's a gentle and then a powerful reminder to me that maybe I need to move beyond that because God's plans are bigger than mine and his purposes are greater than mine. And even if we don't see an answer, we know that he hasn't revealed all things to us right now and that is sometimes his grace towards us. It's this idea that if we can't hear God, we don't lose expectations because his plans are purposeful and powerful. I love how it ended when it says that people were, all the neighbors were filled with fear throughout. (laughs) There's different kinds of fear in the New Testament Greek. There's, we have one word for it, but there's different expressions of it, right? There's fear like I'm going to get smited by something or someone. There's fear like my dad's going to do something to me, you know, in Galatians when we read about it or Ephesians. There's different kinds of fear. This fear doesn't carry with it any kind of the context of fright, like fright in terms of harm. This fear is kind of the fear that comes with awe. I was, had the privilege of marrying a, a former student of mine a couple weeks ago. And my favorite moment, I've said this before, and all the weddings that I do is when everybody's looking this way at the bride walking up and they did this thing where they didn't see each other beforehand. And um, so she's walking up and the husband, the groom is standing right there. And look, man, he's terrified, you know? I mean, he's, he's frightened. But it's not with the fear that is scary. It's with the fear that's expectant. And so what he says, he says, I'm going to name my kid John. And because he does that, people once again, because God had been silent, maybe started to talk about a God who does stuff, who answers, who is near and who is real, and who just because he's silent doesn't mean he's not active and he's starting to speak again. And, and, and why we started the series with this and why we're calling it the Christmas story is because these are stories we've all told before. I'm willing to bet this isn't your first rodeo hearing about John the Baptist's parents in a church, you know. But what I think is really important in all these next four weeks of of talks is the idea that this is how Jesus came to our world and he chose it that way because he's God. So we say that the medium is the message and what that means is the way that God came to this world expresses something we need to know about the character of that God. The way that he came to this world expresses what we need to know about how he works and how he acts and it reminds us of who he is. And he came 400 years later and said to people without kids, I know it doesn't look like it, but I've been active and believe that I will be active again. He says, expect me to move. And it filled their community as everybody talked about it. So my hope and my prayer as we leave this place is as we tell the stories of Christmas that we've heard before, that we've laughed about before, that we've cried about before, that it begins to remind us of a God who works, of a God who is active, and our expectancy for God to show up even if he's been silent grows. Because that's who he is. The medium is the message. This beautiful picture of a God who says, I have a plan and it's good for you. And trust me when you can't see it. Trust me when I'm silent. But know that I'm active. As we tell that story, as we begin to see God moving, the expectancy for what Jesus came to do grows. And as we tell stories around trees and around tables this holiday season, may that happen in our community. May that happen in our church. May that happen with your family. And may we worship a God who came near. Let me pray for us. God, I'm thankful that you came. I'm thankful for how you came. I'm thankful in the middle of the silence. That's not the whole story. I'm thankful that you are good and that I can trust you if I don't understand. I'm thankful that you're a God that answers prayers in your time. I pray as we respond, I pray as we tell the stories this Christmas that it builds an expectancy for what Jesus is doing in our lives. And that Zechari- like Zechariah, if we are in a 
place where we don't, we're faithful but faithless, that you move us out of that because you are good. May the story remind us of that simple truth. Be with us today. Let's live out the message of Jesus well so that people might have hope. We pray these things in his name. Amen.